Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Um, today, we're going to be talking about um, crafting a, a college list and how to put that together. Um, I'm going to give a couple of moments just to make sure that there's enough time for everybody to, to come in. I know there, like, there was a couple of people having a little bit of trouble uh, joining, so I'm just going to give it another minute and then we'll, uh, we'll get started. All right, so let's um, let's begin. It looks like there's a, a couple more people that have come in. We're um, we're going to break and have some questions and everything uh, as we move through the program. Uh, if you do have questions, go ahead and put them into the question uh, box that you'll see on the control panel on your screen. Uh, so I'll, I'll try and stop a couple of times and, and take questions. Um, I would say generally it would be great if we could try and keep questions to be more sort of general, big picture types of things. Uh, in these kinds of settings, sometimes we'll have questions that are really specific to your student, your situation, and we just want to make sure that uh, that they're a little bit more general. Uh, we will offer the opportunity to meet with a with a counselor um, uh, afterwards. So if that's something that you're interested in, that uh, to talk a little bit more about your specific situation, then that's completely fine. Uh, but for these purposes, let's just go ahead and keep those questions pretty general. So just as a little bit of a background, my name is Jamie Moynihan. I'm a college counselor uh, for an organization called Accept You. Uh, I've worked in college admissions and college counseling for my entire professional career, so the last 15 years or so. Uh, I've worked for four different universities in the admission office, uh, most recently being having read applications with the University of California, Berkeley. And then I was also a private uh, a college counselor at a private high school in Washington, D.C., which is where I'm based. Um, and then I've also worked independently with families over the last few years, navigating through the college uh, admission process. So my perspective and experiences in our field is is kind of unique, just because I've worked for large schools, small schools, private, public. I've been on the college uh, side of things, obviously reviewing applications, but then also assisting students and families on the high school side of things, uh, and then also working independently with families. So. I have a pretty good idea, of course, about the admission process uh, and what goes into that, but also a lot about uh, how to work with students, uh, niche programming within unique institutions, um, and really this idea of crafting a college list as well. So today we're gonna talk about uh, a couple of key points. We'll talk about different types of, of colleges, and as we start working with students, um, uh, understanding what these different types of schools are and what, how they uh, differ from one another is a really important aspect. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, then we'll get into how to build your list and create balance so that you are protected through the process and that you have options at the end of the day. Um, we hear the word fit all the time. It's not really, it's not my favorite term, but we want to uh, help students to understand what is the the best environment for them. That's really what I'm looking for when I work with students is, is to try and identify an environment that works for them, their learning style, and what they're hoping to get out of college. We'll talk a little bit about uh, visiting campuses. Obviously right now that is uh, a little bit of a struggle, and so we'll talk about how to navigate that a bit uh, with COVID. Um, and then just a little, just kind of wrap it up with some, some final overall advice and some key points that we've, uh, we've mentioned. 
So let's start by talking about different types of institutions. Um, and primarily, of course, we're focusing right now on, on US institutions, but we'll talk about the different categories that some of these schools will fall into. Uh, so we have uh, a variety of different types of, of schools. We have liberal arts schools. Uh, we have uh, public institutions, private institutions, uh, te uh, technological schools. And then we have sort of these elite institutions of Ivy League and Ivy peers. When I start working with students and families, the vast majority of them um, are going into this process, whether it's in ninth grade or starting 12th grade, uh, they they have a, a few schools that are on their mind that they are most interested in. And I would say 95% of those times, uh, those institutions tend to be Ivy League and Ivy peers types of places. So we're talking about the, uh, the Harvards, the Princetons, uh, the Stanfords, U Chicago's, MIT's, places like that. And that's a perfectly fine place to start uh, with your uh, with your your list. But what we want to be able to do is I'm hearing a I'm just hearing a little bit of an echo. Um, so I think uh, Priyanka, you may have uh, just joined, which is great. But um, could you you mind just putting yourself on mute for a moment? Yes, Jamie, I'm putting myself on mute. Sorry for not joining earlier. I'll do the introductions later. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, so, yeah, so a lot of the students, as they start this process, kind of begin with these ideas of these really elite and prestigious and competitive institutions. And that's a perfectly fine spot to start. But what I'll often ask uh, students and families is I'll say, what is your what's your favorite part about Columbia University or who's your favorite professor? And most of the time, the response is something along the lines of, well, it's a really good school. It has a good program in you know, business or something that they're interested in, uh, and it's in a good location. And those things are, are probably true, um, and it makes it fair to start that way, but that isn't the, the crux of what we want to be identifying with these different types of institutions. Um, if, if you're going to end up saying, I'm going to Columbia University because it's a good school and, a, and I really love New York City, the, to me, they're, they're just, you haven't done enough of the research and you don't really understand uh, enough of what makes that institution unique uh, beyond just your perceived level of prestige of the school. And prestige certainly plays a role. I'm not trying to minimize that. I think that there's, there's uh, something to be said for, for prestige. But especially in today's world where um, college is becoming so expensive and the cost of education is, is increasing, uh, there are so many opportunities for students to identify different schools and programs that may make sense for them that would be more cost effective and may create uh, a greater experience. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what some of those things are. The other thing that's really important when you're working with, with students to build a list, or if you are a student, obviously, um, in building your list is just recognizing the competitiveness and the logistics of these types of places. Um, a lot of times students will look at the acceptance rate at, let's say, Columbia University, because we just use that as an example, and they'll say, okay, the acceptance rate is whatever, 6%. So I have a 6% chance of being admitted. And that really does not tell the, the whole story. Uh, there's a lot of other things that are going into, into 
students being admitted. And so if you really kind of think about it, let's say Columbia has a class of about a thousand undergraduate freshmen that are coming in every year. I would assume that close to 20% of those students are coming in through like, let's say athletics. They're recruited athletes, they're participating in NCAA sports. I would say another maybe 15% of those students are legacies or donors or something like that. And then another maybe 10 to 15% of the students are coming in through other areas of recruitment, whether that's music or speech and debate um, or research or something like that. So they're programmatically recruited. So that leaves about 500 seats for students who are what you would call a normal, average, regular student uh, that doesn't have some sort of like other connector to, to the institution. So that, that number of 6% is actually much closer to probably like two, maybe 3% uh, of, of normal students, if not even lower. So that's an important thing I think for students and families to understand is that the, while, it's, while you recognize it's competitive to be admitted to these, these places, it's probably more competitive than you actually think, okay? Uh, and so I think that recognizing that is important. And, and, part of why, and I, part of why I think that's important is not to discourage the student from applying to those places. I've literally never said in my career that uh, a student shouldn't apply somewhere or that they won't get in somewhere. Uh, but I do think it's important to say, okay, if you want to apply to Columbia and you believe that this is the number one institution for you, I want to be able to understand what are the actual specific attributes about the school that you feel like you are going to be able to take advantage of. What is it about the, uh, the programs, the experiential learning, the internships, the study abroad, the student groups, the professors, the research, whatever it is, what are those specific attributes that you feel like are, are most unique to the school and that you're going to be able to take advantage of to a degree that um, you're not seeing at other places. And then based on that research, I can then say, great, you like this internship program at Columbia, or you like this study abroad. Here are three other schools that have a similar program, but it may be more likely that you are admitted to that institution. And so that's really what we wanna be thinking about is, is, okay, if you love a school because of the prestige and that's where it starts, you then have to identify the specific attributes that you feel like you can take advantage of. Um, and oftentimes when I work with students from India, they're so focused on the IV and the IV peers and tech institutions and to some degree some privates, they lose or they don't, they're not open to some of these liberal arts schools um, that, uh, that may be um, great, great fits for them. Um, I also have students that have a tendency to focus on rankings right and u.s news and world report and if they see it on a ranking then they think it's a great school and oftentimes those rankings are based uh highly on graduate schools and uh, phd programs and liberal arts schools have a tendency not to necessarily have those uh those types of programs and so they may not necessarily rank as high uh, as an overall institution based on that criteria but from an undergraduate perspective um, schools like Amherst or Middlebury, those are some of the, you know, the best schools in the country. And so we wanna make sure that students are aware of what those opportunities are and how they differ. Um, let's start talking, let's talk a little bit about liberal arts colleges. 
uh, a liberal arts uh, institution is going to have what, what they're going to describe as a holistic approach to education. And so that means that um, you're going to take classes in a variety of subjects, math, science, English, history, foreign language. And what they're trying to do is we're trying to, to figure out where is there some interdisciplinary connectivity? How are there ways that we can find overlap within these different places? Um, if you are uh, if you're interested in English and you're also interested in business or you're interested in music and you're also interested uh, in economics, how are there ways that you can find overlap and, and create uh, connections between those unique disciplines? So it's really thinking as a, a sort of a big picture of trying to get uh, an understanding of different fields and spaces and find connections between those. You will still, for the most part, have a major or an area of focus that you, um, that you uh, study. So, and I'm gonna generalize a little bit, but um, most of the time the curriculum is, is split basically into thirds. So you'll have about a third of your curriculum that is based in sort of general education requirements, your math, science, English, history, foreign language. Then you might have another uh, third that are sort of um, elective programs. So uh, you can take a variety of different subjects, you can minor, you can double major, those types of things. And then the final third of your curriculum has a tendency to of course be within your area of focus or what you major in. There are some schools that have open curriculums and so you're able to, so there aren't as many restrictions on um, the, the subjects that you have to be focusing on uh, and you just can take any course. But I would say generally speaking that, that makes the most sense. Uh, liberal arts colleges, have a tendency to be a little bit smaller. So they uh, tend to be, um, we have 500, but um, it's usually like I think of it as anywhere between like 1,000 and 4,000 students is usually uh, what a liberal arts school will be. So that means a lot more relationships with professors, being able to have uh, dialogue within the classroom, uh, being able to bounce ideas off of your peers, uh, those types of things. Those larger lecture style classes that you see in the movies and things, those are few and far between within a liberal arts college. Um, and so uh, I have a lot of times where I'll work with students, one of the first things that I talk about when I, uh, when I meet with them is I ask a lot about what their learning style is. And we say, you know, do you like classes where um, it's sort of an open dialogue, open discussion, or do you like more of a traditional like teacher is presenting in front of the classroom and you're taking notes type of a thing. Um, which one do you do you feel like makes the most sense for you? And then I'll ask things about, um, are you an independent worker? Um, do you tend to procrastinate a little bit? Um, things like that. So just getting a, a better understanding of what the types of environments they, they like to, uh, that they find the most success in. And sometimes you'll have a student that says, you know, I have a little bit of an issue with, procrastination. Um, I really love classes where I can uh, can uh, work very directly with the professor or talk very specifically with uh, with my peers. I like that kind of like experiential learning. I have interest in uh, in some STEM subjects and some humanity subjects. And then they'll say to me, I'm looking at University of Texas at Austin and the University of Michigan. And those those schools are, are so large and you're gonna have these huge lecture style classes. You may not even necessarily be able to, to meet with your professor. So from a learning style standpoint, 
that just doesn't necessarily uh, match with with where they're finding success uh, in in high school. So if they have a tendency to be more of that experiential and engaged learner, then uh, a smaller school probably makes a little bit of sense for them. There are certainly some drawbacks uh, to to smaller schools. Um, there are there are less things available. You know, at a larger school, there tends to be more stuff. There's more majors and programs and research and outreach and opportunities. Um, and so there may not necessarily be as many of those things at a, at a liberal arts college. But um, of the things that are available, you can get involved in a variety of them and you can do them throughout your four years. So if you are interested in um, writing for the school newspaper and running for a class office and playing a, uh, a club sport um, and doing um, uh, some doing an internship like at a liberal arts school you have the ability to do all of those kinds of things you can wear different hats whereas at a larger school uh, it may be that you have to pick one or two of those things and have more of a focal point um, some examples of liberal arts schools would be Amherst, Bates, Colgate, you see the list uh, down below. So let's talk a little bit about public institutions. Um, this is a, a, sometimes an, a, an area that students and families are a little bit confused by with public institutions. Um, they, they think that maybe they are lesser uh, of a school uh, than a private institution, and that just is not the case. Um, the public institution just means that they are receiving some sort of state funding. To be honest, in the U.S. nowadays, the state funding is so minimal that virtually all of these public institutions are, uh, are serve as private entities for the most part. And anyway, uh, like the, the state of, of, uh, of Michigan um, supports their public institutions at like 3% of their overall cost. So it's, it's very, very minimal. Um, Public universities do have a tendency to be larger as far as the the the, uh, the, the student base is concerned. Um, we have 10 to 50,000 students, which is, is is a fair generalization. But there are absolutely smaller uh, smaller public institutions. I went to a public institution for undergraduate that was at about 4,500 students. So there are certainly smaller uh, public institutions as well. Um, Public universities do have graduate programs, uh, which is not something that, as an undergraduate, you need to be overly focused on, but there are, it's just more people and uh, more research, and sometimes there's TAs and things like that, um, teaching assistants. Um, there are, there, there is certainly a, uh, a larger number of offerings, and this is one of the things that we talked about as far as a drawback from the, uh, the liberal arts colleges, uh, is there may not necessarily be uh, the same number of offerings. So at a large school, you're going to see, um, I mean, dozens, hundreds of, of different uh, majors and niche sort of areas of expertise. Uh, and those are constantly evolving. So if you have a student who is interested in um, like petroleum engineering or something very specific, uh, a public institution is much more likely to have that type of a pro program than a, uh, a private or liberal arts school, certainly. Um, there is uh, there is probably a, a little bit more of, of kind of that rah-rah aspect to college where you see in the movies where it's like going to football games and, um, and 
fraternities, sororities, that type of, of environment, there is certainly uh, a greater tendency for that to be at, at a, a larger institution. So if students are looking for that, what I would describe as a traditional um, uh, collegiate atmosphere from a, uh, from a socialization aspect, then a, a public institution probably makes a little bit more sense. Um, their alumni network does does have a tendency to be a little bit wider, obviously, because there's more students. But the thing with the alumni uh, uh, network is for a lot of those uh, these schools, it can be a little bit more regional. Uh, so if you go to a, a public institution, the vast majority or a large percentage, I should say, of, uh, of students who are enrolling in the public institution are from that state. So they grew up in that in that state. And so there is a tendency for them to remain in that region um, where for like, let's say, um, like I worked for Berkeley, for example, there's obviously a lot more students in California who went to UC Berkeley and that network is more significant there than like I live on the, on the East Coast in Washington, DC. Um, it's, it's pretty rare uh, that I run into somebody who uh, went to Berkeley or that kind of thing, right? Um, there are certainly have more opportunities for uh, for research uh, and funding. So um, research is, is a huge component for a lot of these large state universities. Uh, and so if a student is very interested in research, is inter interested in pursuing uh, an area specifically of, of their interest, uh, then research opportunities do tend to be a bit more plentiful at a public institutions. The one negative I would say to that is that those opportunities can be very, very competitive. Uh, so obviously there are more opportunities to do them, but there are certainly more students as well. And so it, it does become very competitive to get access to research, to get access to professors. Um, and you sort of have to climb the totem pole a little bit. Uh, so you're probably not doing uh, undergraduate research as a freshman or as a sophomore. Uh, you might be more competitive and likely to get that as a junior or a senior. Uh, so that's just something to keep in mind is that if you have a student who feels like I want to go to college and within the first year I want to start doing research, then you may want to look at uh, at some some other institution that has that has specific programming for first year research. Uh, private institutions uh, are sort of that kind of in between uh, from a size standpoint. Uh, it's undergraduates from about 5,000 to 20,000, something like that. Uh, private institutions do have a tendency to be a bit more expensive. Uh, from a, a total dollar standpoint, but private institutions also have the, the luxury of, uh, of additional funding. So the increase in tuition um, is oftentimes negated by the endowment and things like that, that the school uh, has. So there's a little bit more flexibility to, um, I, don't want to I don't want to say negotiate, but to have a dialogue about what the tuition is going to be. Uh, and so if you, if a, if, a, if a school says, you know, our sticker price is $60,000, they may be able to, uh, to provide scholarship for $20,000, uh, which makes it much more comparable for a, the, uh, to a, a public institution and that type of thing. So um, I think that sometimes students and families are frightened by the sticker price of a private institution, and I can appreciate and understand that, but I do think it's important for students to uh, and families to still look into and pursue public or private schools um, because the, the the ability to to offer additional funds is, can be so significant. 
Um, oftentimes, these private institutions will have uh, religious affiliations like Notre Dame or Georgetown or Boston College, things like that. Um, sometimes students are uh, are taken aback a little bit, especially coming internationally. They uh, are fearful of the of the religious component to it. Um, what I think is important for them to understand is that there is a religious uh, uh, connection to the um, to the curriculum at at schools like Notre Dame and Georgetown and BC and places like that. Um, but it isn't as if like at Georgetown, it's a Jesuit institution. It isn't as if they're going to say you have to come in here and practice Catholicism or something of that nature. Uh, they do have courses in theology that you are, are required to take from a graduation standpoint, but they don't need to be within Catholicism. Um, they could be in Buddhism or uh, in uh, the history of, Mus of Muslim religion or whatever it might, may be. So there's a variety of different ways. It's more just to think about um, uh, education from a standpoint of kind of mind, body, and spirit, uh, as opposed to just mind. And then the uh, the last uh, kind of tier that we think about are these Ivy League and Ivy peers. Um, so your Harvards, your Princetons, your Stanfords, Columbias, Dartmouths, places like that within the uh, within the Ivy League. Uh, well, Stanford is not, but the other ones are. And then the peers. So when we think about that, we're thinking of highly selective institutions, right? Um, the uh, Dukes, Rice, Stanford, U Chicago's, John, Johns Hopkins, places like that. Uh, places that are extremely competitive from an admissibility standpoint, uh, and they are receiving a just a large volume of applications each year. So really we're looking at institutions where the acceptance rate is like 10% or less, um, something of that nature. Uh, these places uh, have a tendency, of course, to be private institutions. Uh, they are highly selective. They have a, 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 a lot of resources and wealth um, and then they come along with that recognition and prestige that we talked about uh, at the beginning of the, the webinar. Um, again, these things are, are good, and I think that this is a, a good, these schools are a good launching point for students to start with because they're familiar with them, they've heard of them, they're excited about these types of, of places, but we want to make sure that when we're building our list, we're thinking about how can we take those attributes that you like within this school and then create a more balanced list. Uh, there are also institutions of technology we should we should mention as well. So Caltech, Georgia Tech, MIT, RPI, these are places that have more of a, an area of specialization. Um, programmatically, things are going to be a little bit different here as well. There won't be as many kind of general education requirements. There won't be as many uh, uh, across the curriculum types of things. Um, you will likely come in and get started in your area of interest much earlier in your uh, in your time there than at a liberal arts college or something like that. Um, so this is these are really more for, okay, I'm really interested in robotics or I am really interested um, in, uh, in CS or something like that and um, I'm ready to get started with that. Um, so these are, are great options for students who have an understanding of, of really what they wanna be doing and then that they're ready to pursue those. So let's talk about how to build that list. Um, when I'm working with students, uh, I, uh, I I don't want them to apply to more than 10 schools. And I know that might be a little bit shocking for, for some students and counselors 
um, who go into this thinking I'm going to apply to 15 to 20 schools. But here is sort of what, what my perspective is. Um, when, you're, when you're doing research on a school and you're actually the logistics of completing applications, um, logistically, it is extraordinarily challenging for students to complete 15 applications that are strong enough to be one of the top applications that a school is reviewing. Stanford University, for example, last year required 11 different essays. Some of them were short, some of them were long, but there are 11 creative essays that a student needs to submit. The UC application requires four essays. Columbia required, I think, six or something like that. So we're at over 20 different unique essays for only three different schools if you're only applying to like UC Berkeley, Stanford, and Columbia. Okay, so what I really want students to do is to be strategic in the way that they structure their list. Okay, um, we want, of course, we want you to have your, your reach schools. And let's talk about how we're going to categorize these schools as well. So a reach school to me means I think that you are likely admissible to that institution um, maybe 25% of the time or less. So there are some schools, these Ivy Leagues and Ivy Peers that are reaches for everyone, right? Um, so even if you are the, the top student in your class and you have a really unique profile uh, and your testing is great, uh, it, Stanford is still a reach for you because virtually everyone who's applying uh, is in a similar situation, okay? Uh, a match or a target school, as I call it, is a school that I think you are likely admissible to maybe 40 to 70% of the time. So it's better than a coin flip more often than not. You're in the middle 50% for a lot of their statistics uh, and numbers, and we feel pretty good about the likelihood that you'd be admitted. And then the final category are schools that we consider to be likely. So a likely school does not mean that I, I think you're, you're certainly gonna get in, um, but we, we would be surprised if you were not admitted. And we would typically say that you'd be admissible maybe 75 to 95% of the time, okay? So when you're building your list, if you have four schools that are what we describe as reach schools, four schools that are match or target schools, and then two schools that are likely, that means you've gotten to 10 schools, 10, 10 applications is feasible and manageable to be able to, to handle. And we feel like you are likely admissible to maybe like six of those institutions, hopefully more. So, um, so that's the way that we wanna try and strategize as far as what the structure of the list looks like. Um, uh, when you're thinking about when you're starting to, to research these schools and, and build this list, um, some of the key areas that, that I think are important to think about uh, are uh, size and then location. So we talked a lot about what the size means. As a liberal arts school, there, there may not be as many things, but you can get involved in a variety of them. At a larger school, there may be more offerings, but they may be more competitive to be a part of. Um, it's, there's, there could be more research opportunities those kinds of things. So that's a little bit about the size. Location, I think, is an extremely important aspect uh, of this process that students and families don't necessarily think a lot about. And when I'm thinking about location, I'm not thinking about it from a standpoint of um, 
socially, how does it impact you? Or, you know, if I'm in a city, I'll be able to go to more games or there's more food options. That's not what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about it from an academic component, uh, programmatically, how does the institution, um, what role does it play in the community? And how does it utilize its surrounding areas? So generally speaking, schools that are in or near cities have a tendency to engage and, uh, and promote experiential learning a bit more than schools that are in more rural or suburban areas. And so why is this important? If you have a student who is really interested in internships, um, who is not somebody who, who is, uh, uh, thrives in a classroom setting, but would rather take the things that they learn and put them into action and things like that, then being in a city or close to a city is, a is an important aspect of, of their collegiate experience because they'll be able to engage in co-ops and internships and things of that nature. Okay. If you have a student who is a more of a traditional learner, um, they they like sort of that bubble of academia, that type of a thing. Um, they want to learn from their professors. They want to do research. Um, they want to stay on campus. Then a school that is in more of a rural or suburban area absolutely makes sense. But it's just important to be thinking about what are these different types of schools and how does the environment play a role in that process. An example I use oftentimes is Indiana University. And Indiana University is a great school. Uh, I've had a lot of students who have been super successful there uh, and they've done amazing things. And so I'm in no way minimizing the university. But Bloomington, Indiana is not exactly in a, a hub of, um, you know, it's not a metropolitan area in a hub of entrepreneurship or you know, that, that type of thing. It's a, it's a traditional college town. And so if you're a student who is interested in business and you look at the, the rankings on the US News and World Report, the Kelly School of Business is always gonna rank in, you know, the top 50, top 20 probably um, uh, business schools, undergraduate business schools. But the, uh, the, the ability to get all outside the classroom and network and build your resume and those kinds of things is minimal. It, it tends to be a little bit more of being uh, on campus. Maybe you have an internship during the summer. Um, you do something for uh, for um, for kind of shorter periods, uh, that type of a thing. That's a lot different than if you go to school in New York City and as a sophomore you score an internship with Goldman Sachs and you work with them during your sophomore, junior, and senior year. Right? That experience is much much different than a student who is in at IU and we're learning inside the, uh, the campus and, and in the community, and then maybe they do a six week internship in the summer, right? So I think that what's important is for students to think about how does the location play a role in the type of experience that I'm gonna get and what type of experience am I looking for? Do I want that experiential learning? Do I wanna get outside the classroom? Do I wanna build a network, build my resume? or am I looking for more of that traditional kind of bubble of academia, that type of a thing. And so as you think about this, it's, it's important for students to really internalize what type of environment am I going to thrive in? And I hear students all the time say, well, I think I would be able to be successful at a large school or a small school. And I'm not saying that you wouldn't be successful, but what type of environment is more conducive to you thriving? Where are you going to, to stand out in a way that you wouldn't otherwise? 
what types of programs are you looking for? What types of experiential learning? All of those kinds of things. Um, and so that that is is definitely something that we want to be um, be very cognizant of. And every student is different. So one of the questions that we've gotten is, you know, what types of universities would you su suggest Indian students apply to? It's different for every student. It really is. And so when I'm working with students, I want to get a better understanding of what type of learner they are, um, and based on the the experiences that they've had and the hopes that they have for college that's going to help me to, to say hey look i know you are more familiar with the university of uh, california but i think you need to look at amherst i think you need to look at middlebury because here are some programs that are right up your alley that match with some of the things that you're thinking about and that you're interested in and so that's that's a, a big part of, of what we're what we're doing when we work with students is to be able to say like this is you know each each student is individualized and so um, what is it about your experience and your aspirations that uh, we feel like will match well at each of these schools and that's kind of how we organically build the list and that's much different than a lot of times when I start working with with Indian students they'll come to me and they'll say okay we have a preliminary list and they'll give me 25 schools and it essentially mirrors the US News and World Report ranking system. And as I mentioned earlier in the program that that ranking system is flawed in many ways and it can uh, it doesn't tell you the whole story. And so we want to be thinking about what is it about this experience that you feel like you're going to be able to take advantage of. And so much nowadays is um, is not as much about the name of the school as it is about what was the experience that you had? How did you build your resume? How did you, what types of research did you do? Um, that type of thing. So it's, it's more about your experience than it is the name of the school. So let's talk a little bit, we're gonna, we call this on-campus visits, but obviously in today's world, um, coming on campus is not necessarily a, an option. Uh, but we'll talk a little bit more here about how to demonstrate interest in a school. Uh, and there's there's a lot of different ways that you can still demonstrate interest uh, in an in institution, um, but I think that, that what we're trying to focus on today is how to demonstrate interest in a way that is going to help you to build your list. So oftentimes I have uh, I, I hear students who say my my counselor at school told me to email the college rep for whatever um, Stanford. Uh, what do you think about that? And my, my, my answer is, well, what are you gonna write, right? The whole point of this process is to differentiate yourself. So if you're just writing an introduction email that everybody else from your same high school is also writing to this same counselor, there's no way that it's gonna differentiate you. What you do wanna do is you wanna demonstrate interest, but you want it to be organic. And so what I work, when I work with students, we're talking about researching schools and looking for specific programs and attributes and uh, areas of expertise for these institutions and when there are things that stand out about those things uh, with about those schools I say let's get some more information on that so if you like a study abroad program or there's a dual degree program that you think is interesting or um, there's research that's happening that you think is interesting that's how you can organically reach out to to the institutions and say hey I saw this program on your website I'm wondering if you have some more information or I'd love to, to be able to talk to a student who uh, is engaging in it or 
Um, uh, I'm really excited about the possibility of doing this study abroad program. Can you tell me more information? So that's really what we're what we're looking for is um, is this kind of organic way to to be researching schools, gaining a better understanding of the types of programs that are out there and how these these universities are are unique. And that's how you're building your list uh, and and creating a balanced list. But then at the same time, you're able to kind of demonstrate interest and that sort of thing as well. Okay. Uh, it is also important to meet uh, meet students and learn about uh, about these schools and to hear about other people's experiences. But I do warn you a bit on this because um, your every student's experience is is different. So you know if you have a cousin who went to the University of Michigan and they have great things to say about it, you your perception might be okay, great, I'm going to have the same experience. That is not necessarily true. So you really want to look at that as an individualized, uh, from an individualized perspective. What types of, of schools are you looking at and what is going to stand out um, within this, this process for, for you specifically? So it's good to hear about other people's experiences, but you want to take that with a grain of salt a bit. So let's talk about finalizing your application. So this is very important, especially in, in the COVID world that we're in right now. Um, how are you going to strategically utilize early decisions, early actions, regular decisions? Uh, so just to define each of these, early decision, you know, both early decision one and two, those are binding. So that means if you get into that institution, you have to go there. Um, early decision one, the deadline is typically about November one. Early decision two, the deadline is typically right around January 1st. Uh, there are benefits to early decision, certainly. Obviously, you find out a little bit earlier with, with ED1, but then the, the likelihood that you get admitted during the early decision period is significantly, is significantly um, higher than if you applied regular decision because they know, the, the schools know that you have to matriculate. And so their acceptance rate goes up at this time. This is especially important right now within the world of COVID. Um, schools are, are worried about their numbers, they want to make sure that they get their class. And the easiest way for them to be able to do that is going to be through an early decision binding agreement. So I'm, when I'm working with my students, I'm, I'm, we're using the ED conversation and having that conversation right now. And we're talking about what makes the most sense for them strategically. Uh, in years past, students would use this as, I'm going to apply to UChicago because it's such a significant reach for me. And they would kind of take a flyer on it. Uh, and that's okay, but it it was still a significant reach, and they, we knew that it was very unlikely still that they would be admitted to that school. Um, now we're looking at it and saying, okay, you know, I really want to go to um, whatever to to U Chicago, but um, I, I still think that's a, a, a significant reach, even if I apply early decision. So maybe we'll use that early decision to apply to, to, to Tulane or something like that, another institution uh, where we think it's, uh, there's a, a significant likelihood that, uh, that we'd be admitted. So right now with testing kind of being up in the, in the air, and we have, I have a question about uh, what is the yardstick that can be used to be admitted based on SATs. Uh, for this year, 
there really isn't as much of a yardstick because so many US schools are now going test optional because students did not have the opportunity to take test uh, SAT or ACT. Um, so testing will, will serve as an enhancement to your application, but it doesn't serve quite as much as the yardstick that students and families uh, want it to be as it did maybe 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, so we're, we're talking really strategically about how to utilize those early decisions. Um, to, to generalize, uh, what I talk to students about is um, I want you to have one school that you're applying to early decision, ideally, if you're comfortable doing that, and then at least four schools that offer early action. Early action is non-binding. It's an early notification. So you would hear back from your early decision and early action schools typically in about the middle of December. So if you have five schools that you've applied to during that early period and you hear back from all of them in the middle of December, uh, you'll have a much better way to gauge what schools you will need to apply to or you want to apply to during the regular period. If you get into your ED school, great, you're done. If you get in, if you don't get into your ED, but you get into two of the early action schools and you like those schools um, more than you like other schools that you would be applying to your regular decision, great, you're done. Or you might only have a couple more schools to apply to. Uh, so it's a, a way to sort of stagger the work and stagger the, the applications. Um, there's a question of, would, we would like to know if we got a scholarship if admitted to ED1 or ED2. Yep, um, so uh, you're still, uh, you'll still be reviewed for scholarships for most schools that if they offer merit-based scholarships during the ED1 and ED2, but you are looking at it from the standpoint, you, as a family, you've got to look at it from a standpoint of um, what is our expected family contribution, what, and based on the, uh, the net price calculator on the school's website, what are we anticipating paying? And you've got to assume that that's around what you're going to be paying. And if it if it is, then you're you're bound to that school. So I wouldn't expect any more than what the net price calculator on the the school's website is telling you. Uh, there's a question: Is ED binding even if one finally may want to go to another college in another country. So the binding agreement is essentially, it, you can't go to another US school. Um, theoretically, you could go to another school, um, but that's we would have to talk a little bit more about that uh, individually. Um, so let's, uh, so this is uh, sort of our, our, uh, our, well, I'm gonna go through questions, but if you have specific questions, uh, about your student and your family, uh, I would encourage you to reach out to Priyanka um, uh, at the with the information below. Uh, Priyanka, did you want to chime in as well? Um, yeah. So I had a couple of questions from counselors earlier before we started the webinar, and I'll try and jump in. So Jamie, everything that you've said, I'll just give it a little bit of an India perspective. Here's one of the things that Indian students are doing really wrong, as you mentioned. They start with ranking. What you do really need to do is find what major you're interested in, look which part of the country you wish to go, and then look at your college list. This ranking is not really helping. And I'm gonna give you a couple of examples of our children. One of the kids who wanted to do Paul science got into Tufts and Haverford. Tufts is really well known. Pretty much every Indian student has heard of Tufts and would wanna go there. Haverford is not heard as much. 
But when he did his research, he realized the Paul Science program at Haverford was offering him also an opportunity to do international relations at Swarthmore, as well as a public policy program at UPenn because they're sister schools. Now, those are the typical things that one doesn't know of in India. And it's very, very critical that we try and find that out. Second thing was a co-op program. So this kid got into Northeastern, which has an amazing co-op program. And another one of the great, she got into Emory, but she chose Northeastern because in the kind of field that she wanted to do, co-op would really help her. And it's amazing because in the last three years, she's already taken two co-ops internships and has already got a final job offer. So that is what we mean when we say that look beyond the opportunities of ranking. Look at what other colleges have to offer you. Time and time again, Jamie and I give this example of a child who got into Brown in U Virginia. At U Virginia, he got into the Presidential Scholarship. I don't remember the name though. Jamie might be able to tell you. But we encourage him to choose U Virginia and he's actually doing great for himself there. He's got an internship with a good consulting company. He's already completed a research paper. And now the professors actually told him during the pandemic, why don't you come and live with me? And we're going to work on a research together. These are little things that we really need to consider when we're looking at our colleges. And especially when people are asking in these times about scholarship and financial aid. So I'll walk you through some of the scholarships that our kids got just last year. We had a full ride in Williams, full ride at U Virginia, a full ride at Vanderbilt. We had Syracuse, which was almost 70%. We had a huge scholarship at SCAD, Ithaca, Wheaton, U Colorado, Boulder, Amherst, UMass Amherst, sorry, Fordham University, Case Western, U Rochester. We actually even had a full ride at NYU Abu Dhabi. So it's really about opening your own self to looking beyond those top 20 that everyone seems to be doing. And I know a lot of the school counselors are telling you all to do this, but it seems to be kind of falling into blank years. But again, I'll give you an example of a student who got into U Michigan, which is like an Ivy peer, I believe a public university Ivy peer, but she also got into Wellesley. And she chose Wellesley because of the English opportunities that she got there. She's now part of a Shakespeare group. They actually travel the world, all paid for, performing. And that's what she wanted to do. She may not have had this opportunity at U Michigan. Couple of things, be careful about going rural. Um, again, Jamie spoke about Kelly School of Business. And in the last five years, we've seen children who get a little unhappy about being in rural. Our version of rural is very different from the rural version that US understands. Yeah, we live in 150 people in one square foot space. We don't understand what rural could mean. Rural in US could literally be not seeing anything for miles to come. And I can say that for Conan and Duke, which I've visited, I, I couldn't understand how children manage to stay and survive there. And these are brilliant colleges. So you need to do a little more homework. One more thing is understanding the general program. So we have the core curriculum, we have the open curriculum, we have a general program. So many children keep turning around and telling us, oh, we wanna go to Columbia. Why? It's an Ivy League. Do you know about the core program there? No. Do you want to study it on research? Oh my God, no. 
one of the case classic examples is essays of u chicago everybody wants to do u chicago because it's ea so you think hey how does it matter let me just do an ea it's not legally binding you have to see the essay prompts and, and jamie i hope you vouch me for that 60% of the children who read the essay prompts struggle to even think of what they can write there so you know these are little things that you must consider another very classic example is a kid who got into harvey mudd in uc berkeley he was not someone who would have probably survived in a public university he wanted to do engineering didn't know what engineering he wanted to do harvey mudd was a perfect blend for him because he got to do a more general engineering program there so now he's got a job at facebook from there he may not have been able to do the same at uc berkeley it's like what we keep hearing small fish big pond or big fish small pond it really is your choice jamie that brings me to my end is there any questions that you would like to answer uh no that's great um i think we've covered most of these questions um there's questions about like a little bit more specific of can I apply ED into the UCs? The answer is yes. You'll find out before if you if you find out from EDs before you um, hear back from other schools, you have to withdraw your applications. Um, and yeah, I think that that's I think we've covered pretty much all the other ones. Um, the difference between decision and action: early decision is binding, which means you have to go to that institution if admitted. Uh, early action is non-binding. You just uh, find out earlier in the process if you've been admitted. So um, thanks so much to everybody for uh, for uh, taking the time tonight. Um, please let us know if you do have any questions for you specifically uh, or your child, and we uh, we hope to hear from you soon. I I can see a lot of people asking about essays. We're definitely going to have another workshop or webinar on essays. In case you need any essay support, please reach out to me, and we'll be more than glad to try and assist you in whatever way we can. We will be holding a webinar for that soon as well. Thank you so much. Have a lovely night. Good night, everyone. Thank you, Jamie.